Welcome to Rebuilding. This podcast is designed to help the church rebuild its walls one person at a time. For more information, check us out at www.piercepoint.org. This morning is week three of our series, Equipping the Saints. Week three of our series, Equipping the Saints. And this morning, I want to talk to you about something that is unbelievably important. It's, it's actually so important, church, that, uh, that thinking about preaching about it, thinking about teaching about it is a humbling thing. Because here's a, just an honest, candid moment with you. I don't understand it. I don't understand it. There are a lot of things in Scripture that I think we don't understand. I think there's a lot of things that we present as though we understand, but we actually don't understand them. And, and this issue is actually so big, check this out, this issue is so big, it's actually the vision that God has for his church. It's the vision God has for his church. So this is, like, this is a big thing. And that, that big thing that we're going to talk about, that big thing that I don't actually understand, that big thing that's challenging, is called unity. Can you say that word with me? Unity. 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 We have a lot of misconstrued ideas about unity. We have a lot of uh, uh, misappropriated uh, you know, church plans and functions and structures that are based around creating unity, but, but that's just not possible for us, okay? It's just not something we're supposed to do. It all stems, or it all stems from the fact that we don't actually understand unity. And so I'm going to give it my best. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to not give you my opinion and not give you my idea to the best of my ability. And I'm just going to keep going back to the word of God so that you guys can see what God has called us to, what he expects of us. And hopefully that will encourage you. So here, here's where we've been just really quick. We're not going to go through the points of the past two weeks, but here's where we've been. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 13. Here's what the apostle Paul says. And he gave some, this is God gave, these are to the church, uh, gifts of the spirit to the church, apostles and prophets and evangelists and some as pastors and teachers. Some people call it the fivefold ministry. I personally believe it's a fourfold ministry. I believe that the language communicates that God gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, and then one unit pastor teacher because that's what a pastor does and that's what a teacher should be so so pastor teachers for a purpose here's the purpose that we talked about a couple of weeks ago it's for equipping the saints raise your hand if you're a saint raise your hand if you're a sinner raise your hand if you're a liar <laughs> anyway okay moving on anyways you guys are struggling with this but anyway my job pastor teacher apostle prophet sorry Jeff's smiling at me I got a smile right anyway so so this is my job. My job is to equip you or to provide you with the tools necessary to bring about the kingdom. That is for you, the saints, for, and I'm, I'm in that boat too, for the work of service. Last week, we defined work of service as obedience to God. That's what we're called to. And then he says, for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. Why? Because service builds us up. In week one, I asked you how many of you were experts the first day you set foot on your job. And nobody raised their hand because you weren't that arrogant, right? <laughs> and so, so nobody's an expert. But over years of service at your job, the truth is you know far more than the new hire does. You know far more than the other people. Even if you went to college, even if you went to school and you, you knew a great deal going in, you didn't know on day one the politics of your, of your particular work environment. You didn't know the workflow of your particular work environment. You didn't know those things. But over years of service... You've matured, you've come to know something, and, and that's exactly what we're supposed to do, right? Equip the saints for the works of service, obedience to the building up of the body of Christ. But then he goes, until, this is what Paul says, he says, until, and this is where we see the vision of God, until we all attain, say it with me, church, the unity of the faith. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. It's important that you understand how things are written in the Bible. This phrase says, until we attain to unity of the faith and unity of the Son of God. Knowledge of the Son of God. Every time you read it, that's how it's written. That's how it's supposed to be understood. It is the unity of the faith and unity of the knowledge of the Son of God. And both of those things produce in us what we'll talk about next week, which is maturity. Okay? So we're supposed to do this. But, but listen, church, this is the, the picture that God has 
This is the vision that God wants from each and every one of us, that we would attain to unity in the faith and unity in the knowledge of the Son of God. And this is why, when you think about that, unity of the faith, unity of the knowledge of the Son of God, this is why you kind of take a deep breath and go, I have no idea what I'm talking about. Why? Because that's a big task. That's a big thing right there. Isn't it, church? But it's the vision of God, and we need to understand this. Here's the definition of vision, or here's a working definition of vision that a lot of leaders use. It's this. A vision is a picture of a desired future. A picture of a desired future. You all live with vision in your life. This is, the Bible says that the people, where there is no vision, the people perish. How many of you know that from the Bible? Where there is no vision, the people perish. Every one of us needs vision, otherwise we perish. Or, or maybe at best, we just sit it through life twiddling our thumbs. Okay? But we all have vision. You guys have vision for your work. You have vision for what you want out of life. Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kind of explain this a little bit. But you have vision for what you want out of life. Most of you would say that you agree with me on this, that you want to live, you want to work for a living, but you don't want to live for a working, right? <laughs> no, nobody wants to go and just be abused and beat up. You actually want to go to work to bring in resources so that you can get on with the real life that you think God has made for you. Amen. Come on, you guys are just not awake this morning because that's the truth, okay? And so, so you guys want this. We have vision for our life. We have vision for our work. Some of you have vision for vacation. A picture of a desired future. I, I walk around the house all the time and I sing this song that my dad, I, I have no idea where it came from, but I always sing this song. I'm like, uh, something about this coming. What is the song, Sarah? Do you, do you remember what I'm saying? I always talk about taking a vacation someday. Uh, something about my dad can sing it. He doesn't know what I'm saying. You know that song about Jesus, Dad? Sure. The one song about Jesus that I sing. Anyway, so here's the point. Yeah. One of these days, I'm going to take a vacation. I sing this all the time. Sarah's like, it's not happening. Shut up. Anyway, so, <laughs> so, so I always do this because I have a vision for vacation. I have a vision for vacation. It's a, it's a picture of a desired future. All of us have this, right? When it comes to rest and relaxation, if I asked everybody in this room to give me a picture of what rest and relaxation would look like, number one, I'd get every different answer, you know, a different answer for every person here. But you would have a picture. It's true. Some of you might say, man, I want to be on a mountaintop somewhere. This is where I can commune with God because you have this idea that God's closer to the sky than he is. And no, anyway, right? But I want to go to the mountains. I love the mountains. I think that's awesome. Uh, I, I just find joy there. Some of you, you're like, mountains, you're an idiot. I'm going to the beach. I'm going to a tropical island. I need water I can see through. I need, you know, this is what you're looking for. Fine, that's awesome. But the point is, you get it. You have a vision of a desired future. That's what this is all about. Some of you have visions for retirement, don't you? I knew I would get an amen out of that one, right? Visions for retirement. And, and listen, the picture, the snapshot of the desired future of your life is not you sitting around. It's just that you don't have to go and toil and labor for something that doesn't excite you any longer. Right? I mean, all of us, all of us have this vision, but God has visions too, right? God has something. And when the Bible says without vision, the people perish, it's without God's vision that the people perish. It's without God's vision. This is where I get into a big, I don't know, I, I, I can jump on a soapbox at any time to talk about the problems I have with churches and their visions. Because listen, and this is just for extra credit, if the church's vision is not informed by the word of God, if the church's vision is not motivated by the heart of God, it is a worthless vision and it will never motivate people. It will never motivate people. There's a, there's a catchy phrase that gets thrown around uh, among seeker-sensitive churches all the time in our generation. And that is that we want to be a church for people who don't like church. That's the stupidest vision I've ever seen in my life. And I'll tell you why. Number one, it's not biblical. That's dumb number one, okay? It's dumb number two for this reason. If you're a church for people who don't like church, what will you do at your church? Things that people who don't like church like to do, which means you'll never get to the business of the things that people who like church like to do, which is, well, the Bible, 
know, things, you know, whatever, right? Obedience to God. This idea is a popular thing that says we just want to attract the most people possible. But what will come with that is compromise. What will come with that is compromise. If the mission and the vision of the church, if the picture that we're desiring is exactly what God says, then even when it gets tough, we will still stay the course. Amen? Amen. We will still stay the course. This is what we're supposed to do. It's a vision. It's a picture of a desired outcome. And God has a vision too. And his vision, according to the Apostle Paul, inspiring the words that the Apostle Paul writes, is that we would end up in the unity of the faith and unity of the knowledge of the Son of God. But just in case you don't want Paul's take on this, just in case you're like, yeah, it's Paul, he just whatever. Let's think about what the, what the uh, psalm writer David said. In Psalm 133.1, if you want to flip to your Bible, you can. If you don't, just listen to what I'm saying. David says something very bold. He says, how good, Psalm 133 verse 1, how good and pleasing it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. How pleasing it is. Now, here's what's really important. The same Spirit of God that inspired Paul to write that God wants the church to arrive at unity, unity of the faith and unity of the knowledge of the Son of God, also inspired David to write what his heart was. And that was that God's heart loves it when his family, when his brothers and sisters, or when the, when the people of God come together and they dwell together in unity. But David says something really cool in Psalm 133.1. He says how good and how pleasant it is or how pleasing it is. When you think of the word good, listen, I want you, when you're reading the Bible and you read over the word good, I want you to ignore the tendency to think about this question, why do bad things happen to good people? Because that definition of good is subjective. That definition of good is, hey, I'm a pretty good person. But when you think about good here, how good and pleasing it is, I want your heart and your mind to go all the way back to Genesis 1. I want your heart and your mind to go to the creation account where God creates the sun and the moon and the stars. He creates the heavens and the earth. He creates people. And what does he do? He doesn't, he doesn't surprise himself by his creation, okay? God doesn't go, whoa, that's pretty good. I'm pretty good at this creation thing. It's not what God does. What God does is he forms the heavens and the earth and he steps back and he says, just in case you're ever wondering what the standard is, that's good. That's good. Now, this is where all, all the women in the room are going to love this. The only thing God does not declare good after he creates it is man. Isn't that awesome? He was like, he's like, eh. <laughs> right? Right? God forms it's like, kind of stinks. He's, he's kind of smelly, and I need somebody to help him. Okay, and so God makes from him a woman, and then God steps back, day six of creation, and he says, for it is good. All right? Just in case you married people needed to know this, <laughs> you need each other. Oh, desperately bad. Okay, so anyway, so you're not good without it, okay? But when, when David says how good and how pleasing it is for brothers to dwell together in unity, you can hear the heart of God, inspired by the same Spirit, the heart of God declaring that unity is what God says is good. So God says unity in the faith, unity in the knowledge of the Son of God. Oh, by the way, that, that right there, that's good. That's what I want. That's what I want. Some of you are like, that sounds good, but I, I'm still not on board. John chapter 17. Turn with me there. John chapter 17. Should have just had you go there first. But John chapter 17, starting at verse 22. Paul, inspired by the Spirit, says that God's vision, God's picture of a desired future is unity. Unity in the faith and unity in the knowledge of the Son of God. King David communicates the heart of God by saying how good and pleasing it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. And that includes sisters too, right? Jesus himself, praying in John 17, says this. Praise to his Father and says this. He says, the glory which you have given me, I have given to them, God. Now, if you just want to stop and worship God for a second, you need to think about the words that have just been said. The glory that God gave to Christ, he gave to us. So tell me again why you're complaining. Tell me again why life is just so horrible. 
Tell me again why we're woe is me in every area of our life. Listen, I'm not downplaying grief and hard times in life, but those things should be overshadowed by the very glory of God that he has given to us. And guess what, guys? The level of that glory is the same that God gave to Christ. Wow, that's ridiculous, okay? So he says, the glory which you have given me, I have given to them so that what? That they may be one just as we are one. The definition of unity in the Bible is oneness. It is not uniformity. The definition of unity according to the scriptures is oneness, not uniformity. And I'm going to hit on that in just a little bit. The definition, according to the Bible, of unity is oneness, not uniformity. Jesus' prayer is that we may be one just as, that the church may be one just as he and the Father are one. And then verse 23 tells us how that happens. I and them and you and me that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them the way you love me. This is so cool. You want to know how unity works? God in Christ in us. That's how unity works. Is that a mystery? Yes, it is. God in Christ in us. That's how unity works. That's how unity is perfected. But what we have to come to grips with, church, is that it is the vision of God the Father, the picture of the desired future of God is unity. Amen? That's huge. So when you're thinking about God sitting in his cubicle, I don't know that you would think that, but anyway, on his wall, the postcard of the future picture he wants, guess what it is? It's all of us living in unity. It's a picture of his brothers, his sisters, his children living together in unity. To living, living together in oneness. Isn't that such a huge deal? So it's the vision of God for us to be in unity. Unity is defined as oneness, okay? Unity is defined as oneness. The question that we have, and this is where it gets really humbling, is so what do we do about that? If this is God's picture of a desired future, then it's a big one. It's not just my opinion. It's not just your opinion. So this is big. And since it's that big, right, we should want it. Amen? How many of you want unity? Raise your hands. How many of you are going to wait and hold your hands up until I get everybody else raising their hands? Like Margaret and Leo, raise your hands. Okay, so <laughs> I don't even care if you don't want it. You're raising your hand. Anyway, so, okay, so we want unity. Why? Because it's God's vision. It's his future. It's his outcome that he wants inside of our life. We should want this, but it's going to require us diving into the Bible. Diving into the scripture, diving into the heart of God for us to understand how it comes about, okay? How it comes about. The first principle that I want you to know, if you're a note taker, write this down. And that is this, that unity, unity is preserved, not produced. Say that with me, church. Unity is preserved, not produced. Say it again, church. Unity is preserved, not produced. This is so helpful because we don't have to make unity happen. What? What? What do you mean we don't need to make unity happen? We don't need to make unity happen. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 13 doesn't say that we need to make unity happen either. It actually paints the picture just like everything else in scripture. It paints the picture that God is the, the creator. He is the one, the producer of unity. We are simply preservers through faith. We are simply preservers through faith that leads to action. We do not create unity. We preserve unity. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 13. Look at what it says. It says, until we attain to the unity of the faith. Well, Nathan, attain. That means, that means arrive at. That means show up to. That means accomplish something. Well, what do you mean we don't need to get there that God creates it? How does it come about, church? Gifts. God gave to the church, apostles, prophets, pastors, teachers, evangelists. Gifts that God gave to the church to do his task, equip the saints for the works of service. Right? Works of service that are whose works of service? 
God's works of service, they're obedience to God. That's simply us trusting in faith and doing what he said, right? Obedience to God, works of service, to the building up of the body. But who is building up the body? If the gift came from God, the instruction came from God, and the power comes from God. It's God. This is is like hard for us to swallow, right? Paul says right here that God is the one who does it. Rewind back to Ephesians 4 verse 1. Listen to these words. Therefore I, this is Paul speaking, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. Past tense. You have been called. He's talking to the church. With all humility and gentleness and patience, showing tolerance for one another in love. And here's the verse, church. Being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. I want you to get this. We do not produce unity. We preserve unity. It is the church who has created the problem with the division that we have, right? Think, the church is a lot like America right now. What is the, what's the name of our great country? The United States of America. Show of hands, how many of you feel we're united? This time you can keep your hands down. <laughs> Doug's back there. He's like, I'm just contrary. Anyway, so, so yes, so United States of America, and every news feed we have is we're more divided than ever. When we think about the church and we think about the thousands upon thousands of denominations, we go, we're more divided than ever. And here's what happens when we think about this. We go, we will never produce unity. We will never get to unity. It was never ours to produce. It was ours to preserve. It was ours to preserve. It was God's to produce. And God produced it when he saved you. God produced it when he made you regenerate, when he changed your life. God bought you and brought you into a family. Amen? Come on. Listen, I'm going to get to preaching, and I need some people to amen me. Anyway, so... that's awesome. Now I just feel like you're placating me. Anyway, so, so the, the point is, church, listen, listen. The point is, God is the one who produced it. He produced it when we said yes. He produced unity. We were grafted into a family. It's such a beautiful thing. But the church over time has decided to produce it. And let me give you a couple examples of how they did it. Well, this is our denomination, and here's our statement of faith. And guess what? Here's our confession, and here's our creed, and here's our idea, and guess what? If you don't adhere to it, you're clearly not one of us. This is a problem. This is a problem. Guess what we're doing when we make statements of faith and creeds and all these other things? We are not. We are not. Check your heart. We are not with love and gentleness and humility, trying to teach people of the things that have been revealed to us. We're not. What we're doing is saying, if you don't agree with this, go to the Methodist church. If you don't agree with this, go to the Baptist church. We really don't care. And then it's given us need for things like, well, on primary doctrines we should agree, on secondary doctrines we should just agree to disagree, and all this other mumbo-jumbo. Guess what? We're never going to agree. Just get past that. (gasps) Take a deep breath and breathe out. Okay, so we're not going to do that. We were built in unity, okay? We were built in unity, but the church has gotten in trouble because we've tried to create unity, produce it. We don't produce it, okay? We don't. God does, and he declares it right here that we are to preserve it. So this morning, we're going to talk about how to preserve it. Unity is something that is God's vision, it's a picture on the wall. God says, that's what I want. This is the thing that we want, right? So because God wants it, we want it. We're striving after vision, which means oneness, okay? That is striving to preserve it. But we're striving after this beautiful vision that God has for us, okay? Vision or unity is not produced. Unity is preserved. So the question is, even if we don't understand it fully, the question is, how in the world do we preserve Unity. Let's start here, Ephesians 1. Go to Ephesians 1 and start at verse 15. Here's what the Apostle Paul says. For this reason, I too have heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus which exists among you and your love for all the saints. Do not cease giving thanks 
I do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers. And what follows is Paul praying for us. This is so, so cool. You want a model of a prayer? This would be how Paul would pray. Maybe it could help inform your prayer. So Paul says, I make mention of you in my prayer that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, you can picture Paul saying, God, Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, Father of glory, give these people a spirit of wisdom and of revelation. And read this next line with me if you've got your Bibles. In the knowledge of him. What are we to be united in? We're not... We're united in faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God. We're united in Him. Guess what it takes to be united in Jesus, in the knowledge of Jesus? A spirit of revelation. When's the last time a preacher told you to pray for that? I haven't. I'm sorry. My bad. Delinquent here, not reading the Bible for what it says. Guess how we come to a knowledge of the Son of God? Not because we all went to seminary. We come to the knowledge of the Son of God through a spirit of revelation. The Apostle Peter knows this firsthand. What happens for Peter? He goes and he confronts Jesus and he's with the apostles and Jesus says, Who do you say that I am? I love this passage. Who do you say that I am? Peter, being the kind of person that he is, probably a little bit more like me, he's like, I got an answer, even if it's wrong. I got an answer, right? And so he says, he says, you're the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus goes, ding, 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 that's awesome. You got the right answer. Now you get to go to heaven. No, he doesn't say that. He said, flesh and blood didn't reveal that to you, Peter, but my father who is in heaven. Guess what revealed to Peter the knowledge of the son of God? The spirit of God. It is God who is spirit. It's a spirit of revelation that changed Peter's life. Guess how we're going to get to unity or get to the place where we preserve unity? Praying for a spirit of revelation. We need this church. We need this. Show of hands. How many believe that the church is divided? Church is divided. How do we? <laughs> Thank you, Leo. That was really awesome by holding Margaret's hand up. He literally held Margaret's hand up. That was awesome. You didn't hold your own hand up. Hold on, let me, let me do something. Can I hold your hand up? Okay, there we go. Okay. And the winner is, okay, so interactive church. Who would have thunk it? Anyway, so, so here, here's the deal, guys. We need, we know that the church is divided. We're all looking for ways to produce unity, but we don't produce unity. We preserve unity. God produces unity. How does he do it? Through a spirit of revelation of the Son of God. Here's a little bit of what that spirit of revelation entails. Follow along with me, starting at verse 18. He says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling. The hope of his calling. Remember that because we're going to come back to it, right? What is the hope of his calling? What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? And what is the surpassing greatness of his power towards us who believe? These, these are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him, Jesus Christ, as head over all things to the church, which is his body, bracket, which is his body. Look at what it says about us. The fullness of him, we are to contain the fullness of him who fills all in all, you want to know what the knowledge of revelation or the spirit of revelation reveals about the Son? It reveals many things. It reveals to your heart what the hope of your calling really is. How many of you live your Christian life and you go, what in the world is this about? What in the world is this about? I struggle here because I don't, I don't know what my calling. Spirit of revelation can give that to you. And when the spirit of revelation gives that to you, we become united because we're all called to the same thing. It's beautiful, isn't it? We're all called to the same thing. What's the spirit of revelation revealed to us? The riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. I want, you, I want you to look at somebody next to you and say, you're part of my inheritance. Say it, come on. You're, you're part of my inheritance. 
awesome. I got to say it with somebody. You're part of my inheritance. Husbands and wives are like, forget you. I don't want to say that to that person, but it's okay. Look, look, look at what that said, church. I mean, listen clearly to what that said, church. This is a big deal. It says that the spirit of revelation of the knowledge of Jesus Christ will reveal to us the riches of the glory of Jesus' inheritance in the saints. I don't even care if that just means that what he's going to do through the saints, but it is through the whole body. This is profound, church. It's profound, and we need that spirit of revelation. The way we're going to be unified is for praying for this. Another thing of the knowledge of, son of the Son of God that we need to come to is the surpassing greatness of His power towards us who believe. Say this, God is all-powerful. All say it again, God is all-powerful. All now say it with me like you actually like me. God is all-powerful. Awesome, awesome. So listen, when your boss fires you, keep reciting that. When your wife tells you to sleep in the camper out. No, <laughs> anyway, remember, right? Remember that. Listen, do we believe that God is all-powerful? Sometimes. Sometimes. We love to believe that God is all-powerful in saving us. Why? Because we ain't got no hope to save ourselves. But is God all-powerful in my finances? Is God all-powerful in my relationships? Is God all-powerful in my heart? Is God all-powerful in my mind? Is God all-powerful over my depression and my addiction and my pains in life? Is God all-powerful? Yes. See, see, the spirit of revelation reveals these things to us. And what happens? We're able to walk in unity because God produces unity. God produces unity. We simply preserve unity. And guess how we preserve this? Believing it. Trusting it. Putting our faith in it. Because last time I checked, that's pretty much all I got, okay? This is a huge deal. Okay, so let's move on. So you can study that for yourself. I encourage you to just go through those points and kind of study it for yourself because you're going to see some amazing things that that spirit of revelation does. And it is my commitment to you to pray for the spirit of revelation to come on you of the knowledge of the Son of God so that we can become unified, that God would produce it inside of that spirit of revelation. The next way that we preserve unity is back to Ephesians 4. And it comes through our practice in life. It comes through our practice. The context of Ephesians is this. That there were Jewish believers who had come, and this was well known in, in Galatia. This was well known in Antioch. This is well known in Jerusalem because they had a council about it and talked about it. Right? Uh, their heart was the right heart, which was to, to find out how to maintain these things. And so they told the church in, in Acts chapter 16, they told the church that here's how you maintain a, a spirit of unity. You just... You just calm down with your bad self, right? And so that's, that's the Nathan International version. But anyway, so, so they, they were supposed to do these things. Now listen, Paul is writing to a church that is embattled. And that is Jewish believers have come to them and said, the only way we're going to believe that you're part of the promises of God, the only way that you're, you're welcomed into this is if you adhere to the laws of Moses, if you adhere to the, the commands of God from the Old Testament and work them this way. Meanwhile, check it out, meanwhile, in the book of Acts, Peter has gone back to, Israel, back to Jerusalem and said, the Spirit of God fell on these people. They're speaking in tongues, they're prophesying, they're speaking the gospel with boldness. And Peter says this, he says, who can withhold water from them? Meaning, who can say they can't be baptized? And the answer is nobody. Okay? So they were part of the kingdom of God. These Gentiles were, but they were embattled. Because these Jewish believers are saying, no, we're never going to say that you're a part of us. You're not getting our promises. You're not getting our things. You're not going to get this. And so Paul addresses the church and he says, listen, I know that they don't like you, but you must love them. I know that they don't like you, but you must love them. And listen, their differences were doctrinal differences, church. Hear me clear. It was an argument of what we think the Bible says. Ah, you should obey the laws of Moses. You should do this. You should do this. We don't want anything to do you. It was do with you. It was an argument on biblical terms. Make sure you see this, church. And so while they're doing this, Paul says, uh-uh. You, you, with all diligence, preserve unity. Preserve unity. Let's walk through what that means. 
Look at this, so, so cool. Verse four, chapter four, verse one. Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you were called. What is that? Well, go back to verse, or chapter one. The eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know, the spirit of revelation helps you to know what is the hope of the calling that you have. And so back in chapter 4, he says, I, a prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. You need the spirit of revelation to reveal to you what you've been called to before you can ever preserve walking in it. Trust me, church. So we should go to God and say, I need you to tell me what I'm called to. Not personally, not individually. That's an American idea. That's, that's us creating something. We're talking about the hope of our calling. We're talking about the glorious riches of an inheritance with our king. Okay? We're talking about heaven. We're talking about in the presence of God all the days of our life. This is the glory of our calling. And so here's what Paul says. He says, you need to walk in a manner worthy of such a calling. Let me rephrase it for you for modern day English. You need to walk in a manner worthy of the king of kings who is your dad. You and I need to walk in a manner worthy of our dad, of our heavenly father. He's king. At the beginning of the service, I shared with you about holiness and how God is holy. And, and we just kind of make melodies out of it and sing things that we don't really mean. But if we understand how we're supposed to walk in light of who has called us, it's going to change absolutely everything about how we walk. We do not go to work and go, hey, God will forgive me Sunday when I go to church and then tell off our coworker. It doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you were called. Now, here's this whole thing in context. Walk in a manner uh, with which you have been called, worthy of the calling with which you have been called. Verse 2, with all humility. Say the word with me, church. Humility. Say the church, word, church. Humility. You know how hard it is to be angry and divided with somebody who is humble? Oh, they irritate the snot out of me. But I love them. I just don't even understand it, right? Humble people. Listen, God is not the only one. You need to know this. God is not the only one who rejects the proud. You do too. You don't like proud people. You don't even like yourself when you're proud. Do you? No, we don't. Humbleness. Humility. Guess what humility is? I love this definition of humility. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. Humility is not walking around going, I'm just a wretched, awful sinner that never gets anything right. God, doesn't, God probably doesn't even love me. Like, it's just ridiculous. That is not humility. That's just stupidity. So please stop it, okay? Humility is not thinking less of yourself. Humility is thinking of yourself less, right? I love this definition. It's not mine. I wish I would have created it, right? Thinking of yourself less. Most people attribute that to C.S. Lewis, just in case you're a geek like me. Most people attribute that quote to C.S. Lewis. It was Rick Warren, whatever that means for you. So anyway, so I was like, dang it, I wanted it to be C.S. Lewis. So anyway, so the idea is thinking, not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. Here's how we preserve unity in the church. You know the thing that God bought for us. The picture on the wall that God says we're, we're all about or he's all about, okay? How we preserve unity is that we walk in humility because there is no way we divide on the goofy lines that we divide on if we remain humble. Do you know that? Dave, do you know that? Smile. It's important. It's important. Humility is number one. How do we walk in humility? It kind of goes some different ways. I was going to ask Barney to be my, my, uh, be my guinea pig this morning, so I'll just try to do it in words, because um, he doesn't like coming up here anyway. So, but anyway, so so humility, humility. Let's say you're in an argument with somebody, theological argument. Somebody says. I believe once saved, always saved, and the rest of us know what the Bible says. And so, anyway, that's not humble. Anyway, sorry. So anyway, so listen, listen, let's say you're in a theological argument. Humility says, listen, I'm all ears because I may have this completely wrong. 
I'm all ears. I want to hear your argument. I want to hear what you're saying. I want to hear why you say what you're saying. And I would love to sit down with you and have a conversation about this because it's important. It's important to you means it's important to me. Humility says, let's make time to talk about this. Pride says, I'm right, you're wrong, it doesn't matter. Pride is exactly what the Pharisees and what the Judaizers were doing who had come to faith in Jesus. Sorry, we're right, you're wrong. Obey the laws of Moses, get circumcised, you can't be a Christian. Meanwhile, Peter and Paul and all the apostles and all the believers are going, what? We don't want to go through circumcision. It's not pleasant, I'm sure. <laughs> anyway, so especially if you're a grown man. But anyway, so whatever. You guys are just not here this morning. So anyway, humility, right? Here's my humility. I just talk about stuff in front of you. That's great. Okay. He's an idiot. That's what the problem is. Okay, so humility. Humility is the first thing. The next one is gentleness. With all humility, not just some humility, all humility. And then with gentleness. With gentleness. You know that the Bible says to speak the truth in, huh? What's it say? Speak the truth in love. Speak the truth in love. This is that I have a truth that I want you to know, but I love you enough to tell you gently. My name is Nathan, and I am awful at this thing, okay? I'm serious. It's not really something that I laugh about or I'm excited about. It's something that I'm deeply trying to change. I love to go into a room and just blow stuff up. I love to be the guy theologically and thought-wise to throw the grenade in the room and say, ha ha, deal with that. Put the pieces back together. But that's not, it seems, what God has called us to do. What God has called us to do is say, so I know what you're saying and I know what you believe, but let me show you some Bible passages that I, that I think contradict what you're saying, that I think probably could challenge what you're saying, what say you? I end most of my emails this way. I go, thoughts, question mark? <laughs> thoughts, question mark? The reason I ask that question is because I actually want the input of the other side. And it's, it's a work of mine to be as gentle as possible. I'm not always gentle. But God says that we preserve unity through humility, and we preserve unity through gentleness. Isn't that powerful? He goes on with all humility and gentleness, with patience. Let's just do it again, just for a refresher course. How many of you struggle with patience? Some of you got either better <laughs> or you just, yeah, whatever. I'm just moving on. Okay, so the point is, is that we struggle with patience, but here's how we preserve unity. Patience, patience, patience. What happens when somebody disagrees with you? Patience. What happens when somebody normally disagrees with you? That's it. I've unfriended you. I've blocked you. I've muted you. You are not getting through in any feed that I have on social media because you're an idiot. That's, that's what we do, church. That, like, let's just be honest with ourselves. But we're supposed to be patient. And who are we supposed to be patient with? Let's actually put it in the context of the argument in Ephesus. Who was Paul telling the Gentile believers to be patient with? The people who said, you're not really saved. Would you be able to do that? Would you be able to be patient with somebody who says, sorry, you're not really saved? I don't know that I would. I mean, I'd be patient with them after I beat them. I'd be patient with them to recover, right? But, but it doesn't, it's weird to me, isn't it? it? It's weird to you because this is against our nature. We don't create unity. We don't produce unity. We preserve unity. We do, through, do so through humility, through gentleness, and actually that fruit of the Spirit that everybody hates, which is long-suffering. Guess what? When you got saved, I tell you this all the time, it was the beginning of a thing, not the end of a thing, which means we won't even have this figured out when we die. Do you know that? We won't, no way. It's not like we're like, well, Nathan, he's got this figured out. No, ask my wife. I don't have this figured out. I'm trying to figure this out. I'm giving myself to it. And so what I would love for you to do with me and me to do with you is to have patience. Guess what that would change in the modern church? Division and planting of other churches and running to other churches just because we're mad at the person behind us. This is foolishness, church. And it depicts that we look just like the world. We don't have gentleness. We don't have humility. We don't have patience. We don't have nothing. And Paul, 
Jesus says, you will know them by their fruit. Patience. Uh-oh. We need to get on that praying for the spirit of revelation of the knowledge of the Son of God. And we need to get on this humility, patience, and gentleness piece. Last but not least is tolerance. And just for you guys, I, just, I need you to listen to me and hear me clearly. What time do I have? Am I just winging it? 11.15, okay, I need to shut up. So here's uh, unity, check this out. Or, uh, yeah, tolerance, tolerance. This is not social justice warrior tolerance. This is not snowflake on a college campus tolerance, okay? You all know what I'm talking about. Come on, you watch the news, right? This is not, this is not everybody's offended at everybody tolerance, okay? Except for that you don't show tolerance to the people you're offended at. Anyway, it's not that kind of tolerance, this is something far bigger and far greater. If you listen to nothing that I say, you need to understand what is said. First of all, it's the same Bible that writes this, that interprets what it means, which is tolerance in love. The same Apostle Paul wrote to us what love looks like. Tolerance in love means love is patient. Tolerance with patience. Love is kind. Tolerance with kindness. Tolerance means love, ki patience, kindness, gentleness. We've just read all these, right? Self-control, keeping no record of wrong, right? Hoping all things, believing all things. Love never fails. Tolerance with love. Tolerance that never fails. That's not the problem that we have. That's not the problem that we have. We have no flipping clue what tolerance means. I was an engineer before I was a pastor. I went to school for that. I, like, I, I like math. I like mechanical design and things like that. I like all kinds of design. But anyway, whatever. So the reality is I was familiar with the thing called tolerances. I was going to put this up there, but I forgot to, so it's not there. Anyway, so tolerances, right? Tolerance. When you're machining something, what do you see on a print? If you're an engineer or if you're a machinist, you see, you see 5.6 plus or minus something. Could be ten thousandths of an inch, it could be a thousandth of an inch, whatever it is, you've got a tolerance. Listen to what we miss about tolerance. Tolerance still has a bullseye. Five plus or minus one still says five's the goal. It just simply says, I will have patience if you get to six, and patience if you hit four. It's not the same, it's not the same for you to aim for five and hit 27. Because the truth is you're not even aiming at that point, okay? When God says that the goal of the Christian life or the goal of relationships in the Christian life is, is marriage between one man and one woman, when he says that, you have the bullseye. Tolerance says, I understand why you're tempted. I understand why you move this way and that. But there's still a daggone bullseye, and you better be aiming for it. Tolerance with people says, we're all shooting for what God wants. We're all shooting for what he says. Listen, we're not united with people who are not shooting at the same goal. We are bought into a place of unity when we're all hitting the same target. Tolerance simply means we can have patience and kindness and love and generosity and, 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 and just whatever. We can have all the fruit of the Spirit when somebody lands within the plus or minus. Okay, We understand it. We can have grace with them. I'm so thankful for grace. As a husband, when I make mistakes, my wife doesn't say, sorry, it's five or it's nothing. Get out of my house. She goes, I understand. I understand. We know the goal, though, right? Family meeting. <laughs> we know the goal, right? This is what tolerance is. So, guys, listen. Wrap it up. God's vision is unity. That comes through pastors and teachers equipping the saints, but God gave all those things, so that's important. It's God. Unity is God's vision. That's his goal. That's his picture, the snapshot of a desired future, and we're aiming for that. That's what we want to preserve in, inside of all that. This vision of God is so important, it's so big, that it requires a spirit of revelation to get to it. A spirit of revelation of the knowledge of the Son of God. And it requires action on our part to preserve it, which means no matter what people do, no matter what people say, no matter how many disagreements there are from the Reformed camp, the Catholic camp, the this camp, the that camp, we're people that say, hey, are we all shooting for the same goal? As long as we are, I got tolerance. As, all, as long as we are, I got humility. As long as we are, I got patience. As long as we are, let's have a conversation with gentleness. That's what God has called us to do, church.
This is big stuff, right? This is big stuff. And, and listen, we're not going to get there tomorrow either. See, the beauty of patience is that we're going to need it for a while. We're going to need it for a while. So here's my commitment to you. I make commitments to you all the time, but I stand by those commitments. My commitment is, number one, I'll be praying for you. I'll pray for that spirit of revelation of the knowledge of the Son of God, because without it, church, we're not going to get it. We're not going to get it. We're not going to get it. I will pray for you. Here's, here's what I'm asking you to do. Pray for me. Pray for me. Because getting this down is complicated. It's challenging. There's, there's just things that we don't know, and we're not going to know until we get older and more mature, and we've walked with the Lord, or we, we tarry in his presence, or whatever way you want to say it. We need those things. So I'm going to pray for you. I need you to pray for me. Then, these are the four actions that are going to govern our church as we move forward. This is my commitment to you. It's not always been. So I apologize if you've been on the receiving end of the bad side of Nathan. Okay, But here's my commitment to you. Number one, humility. Humility. I don't, I don't know everything, church. I don't claim to know everything. Anybody who really, really, really knows my heart knows that I'm not a person who stands up here and says, you don't know that by now. It's just not in me. It's not my heart. But I will exhibit humility better and better all the days of my life. Because the truth is, even if I think I know something, I can be wrong, right? Right? Say right. Say this. Say, I can be wrong too. I just wanted to hear that and get it on record. Anyway, so, so, so humility, number one. Number two, gentleness. Gentleness. Speaking the truth in love. Gentleness. Sarah and I struggle with this with our girls. Just truth be told, we struggle with this. Our daughters do something, and the first thing that we think to do, listen, we, we just shut up. <laughs> That's what I was trying to exemplify right there, okay? So it is natural for us to not be gentle. It's, it's natural for us to go, right? But with one another, with eternal matters, with the kingdom of God at stake, at least for our part in it, it's important that we have gentleness, right? Humility, gentleness, patience. It's my commitment to you that I will be patient with you. It's my commitment that I will be patient with Jeff Currington. <laughs> I, just, I need to hug him real quick. You know, Jeff, Jeff gets embarrassed every time he comes to church, which is probably why he doesn't come to Anyway, okay, so I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. So get on him. Th that is what a wife always says. Patience, Kathy. <laughs> okay, so patience, I commit to patience. I commit to patience. And listen, tolerance and love. Here's, here's what I want us all to agree on. We're all aiming for the same bullseye, yes? Yes? Yes, okay, awesome. Then there will be tolerance when we miss. There will be tolerance when we move to the side. Not because we weren't aiming for the right thing, but because we just couldn't seem to get it in that moment. So we're all going for this. These are the commitments that I have to you. They're the commitments that I hope that you'll have for me. Thanks so much for listening to Rebuilding from Pierce Point Community Church. We hope that today's podcast will help you become a more connected part of Christ's body. Remember to check out our website at piercepoint.org for more information.